Well, good morning once again. It is good to have you here this Lord's Day. It is good to see some friends that I haven't seen in a while with uh, Sarah and, and Michelle being here and Ron and Sharon being back from, from Florida. Uh, it's a good time uh, to come back. We're in part two of our series, Indescribable God, and no better subject than we could be discussing in worship. And uh, again, just so glad you're here. And I want to thank you uh, for the comments that you gave to me after last week's message. Several emails that I got concerning uh, your relationship with your earthly fathers and then with your heavenly father as well. And last week we began a new series about God. And I believe this contains some of the most life-changing, some of the most uh, life-defining content that we can really engage with and experience in life. Because when it comes to the subject of God... Uh, in, in, a, in a room this size, in a church this size, I believe that uh, we're all over the place. Many of you struggle with the belief that there is a God, or that if there is, that he is a, a loving God. And I understand all that. This past week, many of you spoke to me about some disappointments that you felt with God at some point in, in your life. You feel you prayed to God, and uh, he didn't hear you. Some of you wondered how God could be so loving and allow the, the tragedy and the pain and just the, the abuse maybe that you've seen in this life or violence in, in the world. And so you've got a lot of questions about God. And as I said last weekend, there are many times in life that I have encountered people who said, uh, I don't believe in God and I don't think I could ever believe in God. And oftentimes I'll respond with that question, well, why don't you tell me about the God that you don't believe in? Tell me about the God that you don't think you could ever place your faith in. And when they describe that God, my response comes back to them, well, I don't believe in that kind of a God either. I don't believe the God that you just described. And then I'll say, let me tell you about my indescribable God. Let me tell you about the one that I desire you to have a relationship with. You know, I've always loved the, the voice and the words of S.M. Lockridge. He was known as an African-American pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California. And uh, I love to hear him speak in that gravelly, deep voice. And he said this, the Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. He's a national king. He's the king of righteousness and the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven and the king of glory, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's my king. And I wonder, do you know him? And then he would build with anticipation. The Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. My God is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the shoreline of his endless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He is enduredly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast, immortally graceful. He's empower, uh, imperially powerful and impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son, the sinner's savior, the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's awesome. He's unique. 
He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea of philosophy and literature, the highest personality, the supreme problem of higher criticism. He is the fundamental doctrine of two true theology. He's the miracle of the ages, the superlative of everything good that you would choose to call him. And he's the only one qualified to be the all-sufficient Savior. And I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength to the weak, to the tempted and tried. He sympathizes, he saves, he strengthens, he sustains, he guards and he guides. He heals the sick, cleanses the lepers, forgives the sinners, discharges the debtors, delivers captives, defends the feeble, and blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and beautifies the meek. And I wonder, do you know him? Well, my king is the king. He is the key to knowledge, the wellspring of wisdom. He is the door of deliverance, the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness, the highway to holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous, but his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. And he goes on to say, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses could not get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death could not handle him. And the grave could not hold him. That's my king. That's my king. And Father, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And how long is that? When you get to the end of all the forevers, then amen and amen. That's my king. And I wonder, do you know it? You see, that's what this series is all about. Helping you discover the indescribable one and, and praying that you see God, that you experience him in a deeper relationship if you already have one or perhaps in new ways and learn about him in ways that maybe you've never understood or applied within your heart in ways you've, you've never seen him before. Ben Merrill was a preacher several years ago in Missouri, and he was in an airport about to catch a flight in the gate area and struck up a conversation with another guy who was also uh, waiting for his plane. He learned a little bit of this man's story. The, the guy was 40 years old. He was flying out for his company to represent them at, at an electronics convention to kind of market for them. And he asked Ben Merrill, what do you do? Now, it might sound strange to you, but typically as ministers, we try to hold off on giving our identity as ministers to people because once you do that, everything changes in the conversation. Uh, people, when they know you're a preacher, they clear up their language. They change the topic of what they're talking about. Uh, it's impossible to have a normal conversation once somebody knows that, that you're a preacher. But after a bit, Ben stopped and he said, well, well here's what I do. He said, I'm a preacher at the Harvester Christian Church in, in Missouri. And, and uh, they started to talk, and, and he stopped him. He said, you know what? I'm a Christian too. And he found out that they were both fellow believers. And then he told Ben his story. He said, 10 years ago, 
You would not have believed the things that I was into. I was stealing cars. I was distributing drugs. And he went on to describe in technicolor detail a life lived on the wrong side of the law. And it was quite a colorful story. But then he said, I found the grace of God. And when I found, and I love this, he said, when I found the grace of God, it devastated me to think that there was nothing that I could do to earn it, that all I had to do was accept it. I couldn't believe it. And then he finished with this statement, being a follower of Jesus, it's made a free man out of me. Being a follower of Jesus, can you say that? Can you say, ladies, it's made a free woman out of me, men, that it's made a free man out of me? And that surprising statement, it comes to some of you because some of you would believe just the opposite. You believe that becoming a follower of Jesus means exactly the opposite of becoming a free person. I mean, as an individual. But here's a guy who had no hope. He had no freedom. He had no future. He had no forgiveness. And for most of his life, he thought he was too far gone. He thought he'd made too many mistakes, but he experienced the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And friends, this again is the indescribable God that I want all of us to come to know. And I want to understand today with you how his grace is sufficient for you. Friends, God's grace, it's enough for your past. God's grace is enough for your future. It's enough for the present that you're in. For all your mistakes, all your failures, all the relational tangles that you've created, the messes you have in your life. And this is my goal today. My goal is that with God's help, I want you to understand the extent of God's grace for you. My prayer is that this would be a congregation that celebrates, that rejoices in the grace of God, that you would receive it as you never have perhaps before within your life, and that you would do as dozens and dozens of people have done, as Adam talked about in the communion meditation, that you would courageously and spontaneously express your faith in Jesus if you've never done it before, before you leave here, and you may say, I, I, I don't know, Bill. I don't know that if I can be spontaneous or express my faith. But friends, when you experience God's amazing grace, it leads you to do some pretty amazing things with your life. Now, what does the Bible talk about when it mentions God's grace? We miss the truth of grace so many times because we put it in human terms. We take our understanding of grace. If we talk about somebody who, who's gracious, we'll say, well, you know what? He, he is such a gracious guy. Or she's such a gracious host in her home. We think of grace as being nice. That grace means that, you, that you're tolerant, that you're kind, that you're patient. But what does the Bible mean when it talks about being gracious? Well, I want you to see this morning that God expresses grace in a unique way. Jesus tells a riveting story in Matthew, the 20th chapter, and I'm going to ask you to turn in the scriptures there with me. I think it's fitting that we go to the book written by the tax man in the month of April here. He writes the account down in Matthew 20 of, of a vineyard owner who's very generous with his payroll. And we'd all like to work for somebody like that, right? 
And the story begins in Matthew 20 in verses 1 and 2. And Jesus says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and he sent them into his vineyard. So these men in the marketplace, they kind of gather in this employment pool in the center of town. And and we find that this is at 6 a.m. That's when the Jewish work day started. And they were gathered there hoping to find some work just for the day. And all of a sudden, the owner of this vineyard comes along, and he says to these men that are hoping for work, and they know if they don't get a job for the day, they're not going to be able to feed their families that night. These are day laborers. They don't, if they don't get work that day, they don't know how they're going to be able to, to pay the bills. They're just living from day to day. And this man says, would you like to come and work in my field? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, Man, you are an answer to prayer. I'd love to come work for you. Well, how much do you want? Let's, let's make it a day's wages. Let's say in modern terms, let's say it's $200 for working 12 hours. Oh, agreed. And they are so excited. We're going to eat tonight. Our families are going to eat tonight. This, is, this man is providing for us, and they go to work. Well, three hours later, in verse 3, We find the owner of the vineyard is still running errands. He goes by that employment pool again, and he sees some other men that haven't found work. Maybe they like to sleep in a little bit too long, but his heart goes out to them, and he feels for them. And so we read in verse 3, about 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard. And notice this changes. It's not what will you work for. It's I'll pay you. Whatever's right. I'll make sure that you're taken care of. And, and they say, that, that's fantastic. They don't even know at this point how much they're going to get. They just know, he says, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you whatever's right. And verse 5 goes on to say they went out. Well, three hours later at noon, in the heat of the day, the employer goes to the employment pool again. Same thing happens. He goes to the marketplace, and and these men go from the marketplace to the farm for six hours of work. And he says the same thing to them, I'll pay you whatever is fair. And they're probably thinking, well, half a day's pay is better than nothing. Now, three hours later, Jesus said the landowner came by again. He sees more people. He makes the same deal. I'll pay you what's fair. But then the story takes kind of an unprecedented and unexpected turn. At five o'clock, with only one hour left in the workday, the landowner passes the employment pool, and there are these dejected men who have gone all day with no one to hire them. In one hour, they're going to go home and tell their wives, I didn't find work today. In one hour, they're going to go home and look into the eyes of the children that they know they can't feed for that day. Maybe tomorrow will work out. But verse 6, about 5 in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and you work in my vineyard. Verse 6 and 7, verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, it's time to pay them. 
Call the workers and pay their wages, beginning with the last ones hired first and going on to the first. So the men line up, and those that work for one hour, they're given $200. Amazing grace. Those that had worked three hours, $200. Those that had worked six hours, I can't believe this. He's given me a full day's wages for half a day, $200. Those who work nine hours, it's amazing grace. And you can imagine how ecstatic these men are. We've never seen a boss like this before. We've never seen someone so free with their finances. And then, as you might guess, they come down to the men that had worked all 12 hours. And by now, they're thinking and adding up in their mind, what's he going to pay us? I mean, this has got to be good. Verse 9. The workers who were, excuse me, verse 10. So when they came to those who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. Wait a minute. This can't be right. You gave the same amount of pay to all of us? We've been here all day long. And they begin to grumble against the landowner. Verse 12, these that were hired last, they only worked one hour, they said. And you made them equal to us who borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. I mean, Bonnie, you would say, let's just cook my chicken, Right? I mean, this just, that's, I can't understand this. It doesn't make sense. And the landowner said, I wanted to give them some grace. My heart went out to them. He answered one of them, verse 12 or 13, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do with what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? And so the last will be first, and the first will be last. You see, he wanted to give what was not deserved, even to those who perhaps needed it the most. Now, to fully understand what grace is, I think it might be helpful just to explain uh, from a biblical perspective, what justice and mercy mean. And you've got this there in your outline. Justice, it means getting what I deserve. It's the thief on the cross looking at the other thief who's insulting Jesus and saying, don't you fear God? We're getting what our deeds deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. But grace means getting what I don't deserve. Let me put this into a, an illustration that maybe this will help you understand. Let's say that after the service today, you go out to the parking lot and you walk up to your car and I'm standing there next to your car with, with a key in my hand and I have just made a big scratch down the side of your car. I just keyed your car, okay? I mean, I've taken it down to the metal and you look at me and say, Bill, what, what are you doing? And I look at you and say, I, I'm so sorry. I mean, I, I just got angry. You know, you slept through my sermon, and so I, I felt like I needed to get back at you somehow. But, but now that I see what I did, I, I am so sorry. Now, in that point, you got one of three options, right? You can extend to me justice, you can extend to me mercy, or you can extend to me grace. 
Now, if you want to extend to me justice, you'd say, Bill, this isn't right. You have defaced my property. I'm, I'm going to call the police. We've got to fill out a report on this. Bill, you're going to do some hard time for this, right? I mean, you're going to get what you deserve. And admittedly, yeah, I would deserve that. Or you could extend to me mercy. You could say, you know what? I did fall asleep during your sermon this week, uh, Bill, and, uh, and I know you're upset. I tell you what, don't worry about it. Uh, let's just forget about it. That's mercy. I don't deserve that. But grace, what does grace look like? Grace would look like this. You, you would look at me and say, Bill, I can see you're sorry. And you reach in your pocket and you take out the keys to your car. And you say, Bill, you know what? Why don't you just go ahead and take the car? I want it to be yours. In fact, let's go down to Marathon on the corner. I'm going to top it off for you. I want you to have a full tank with this car. And, and Bill, why don't you go to the body shop? And find out what it's going to cost to repair that, that key scrape and, and have it repaired, painted like it was factory new. And you just send me the bill, okay? That is grace. That's amazing grace. Now you can see the difference, hope, between justice and mercy and grace. It's getting what I don't deserve. And that is this indescribable God. This is the God who gives triple bonuses to people who've walked into faith with only one hour left to work. Sometimes, many times, all the time, God gives us so much better than we deserve. Now, some of you here this morning, you grew up in performance-oriented homes. The underlying message from your parents and your household was if you behave good enough, if you speak well enough, if you achieve well enough, then you'll be loved. We'll love you if you can live up to our expectations. And you grew up in an environment like that, and you never knew, am I good enough? And without realizing it, you have taken that relationship, that same point of view with your parents, and you have transferred that over to God. And you think God is the same way, that somehow with God, you've got to measure up. Somehow with God, you've got to perform well enough, and you have worked out within your heart and life this performance plan with God of some kind, that you have to pay a penance that you have to do good enough and overcome the bad. And friends, that would not be grace. You see, God loves us so much. He takes care of the first two. He pays the price of justice. Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is? It's death. That's justice. That's what our lives deserve. We fall so short of a holy God but the gift of God is eternal life. That verse goes on to say, in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's getting what we don't deserve. You see, just like the landowner in Jesus' story who gives a full day's wages to those who don't deserve it, God gives amazing grace to people like us. And just like the landowner, it had to come out of his own account. It had to come out of his own pocket to pay all these wages that people didn't earn, but he graciously gave them as a gift, and God paid the price of the life of his one and only son being crucified on a cross, being buried and raised from the tomb, and leaving it in an empty grave just for you. 
That was the cost of grace, and he paid it because he loves you more than you will ever know. And, and God, whether, whether you've got 12 hours of goodness left in your life, or nine hours of goodness, or six, or three, or even if you've only got one hour of goodness left in your life, you know, we all receive the same gift of grace. I don't know how many sins you've accumulated in your life. I know how many Mark Myers has collected because God has shared that with me, and I just don't have time to go into that. But, but let me say, it could be one sin, or one million, or one billion. The gift of forgiveness that comes from God is exactly the same. The promise of eternal life. That's the new start that God gives to us. Let me just give you in 30 seconds some of the ways, some, some of the depths of God's amazing grace. And this is by no means comprehensive. But when you get amazing grace, I want you to see what you get along with this. Look at this. You become God's child. You're God's workmanship. You're God's friend. You're God's vessel. You're God's witness and his ambassador, his instrument. You are called, chosen, forgiven, adopted. You are complete in Christ, sanctified, made holy, loved eternally. You are light. You are now a city upon a hill, secure. Romans 8, you are more than conquerors through him who loves you so. You are healed. You are sheltered. You are constantly on the mind of God. I love that. You're at peace with God, favored by God. You're designed significantly and lavishly loved. You are accepted. And friends, you are his. That's what this indescribable God provides in his amazing grace and so much more. 1 John 3, 1 says, look, see, examine, behold the great love that the Father has lavished on us that we would be called the children of God. And then I love that verse in Galatians 3, 27. All of you that were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. That's what he does. And yet some of you, you've never experienced amazing grace. And the reason you haven't experienced it, sometimes it's just because you don't think you need it. Or you don't think you're worth it. You don't think you're good enough. You don't think it could reach down and touch someone like you. You, you feel like you're a class A failure. You've stolen. Maybe you've committed crimes. Maybe you've committed fraud within your life. Maybe you've slept with so many people in your lifetime, you can't even remember all their names. Maybe you've done things in your life that you think would make the people in this church blush if they heard. You've ripped off other people, or maybe for some of you it's, it's late in life, and you think, Bill, I'm past halftime in my life. Or I'm in the final quarter of my life and it's really too late to understand and experience God's amazing grace. It's like I'm at that two, or two minute warning on the clock and, and there's no way I'm going to make a comeback. Some of you, God has given overtime in your life. Some of you have gotten extra overtime. But listen, his grace, it's enough. No matter how much time you have left with life or how little time you have left with this life, whether you're coming to God at noon or three or five, his grace is sufficient for you. And I want you to know that no matter how you think or feel, 
Remember, we are led first by faith, then by fact, then by feeling. And the fact is, God offers you amazing grace. Well, let me just say this morning, you know, how do, how do you receive that? Perhaps you've heard the verse in Ephesians 2.8 that says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's just a gift from God. It's faith in God that he is as good as he said he was, and he expressed his goodness through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says when you truly come to, to believe in him, that you turn and repent. And I know repent is one of those scary biblical words, but it simply means you stop the direction that you're going and you turn around and go the other way. What you spent your body on, you do so no longer. What you focused your mind on, you change and you focus upon Christ. And you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. And you live in a new direction as Jesus transforms your life. And according to the Bible, friends, nothing expresses that, that new life more than being baptized into the new life through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word in the Bible that's used for baptism, it's the word meaning to submerge, to take the plunge. And some of you have not done that. To come out of the water as a new creation in Christ. I want you to listen to two verses in scripture. This comes from Colossians, the second chapter and the 11th verse. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And Romans 6, 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, when you think about baptism, why would God give us such an action? I mean, when we're kids and we go into the water, we're playing at the pool, we were told we're not allowed to dunk each other, right? It's not the, the socially acceptable thing to do. You go to the local pool with the Y and you do that, and they're going to kick you out and take your membership away. Why in the world would God ask us to be baptized? I think there's two reasons. One is theological, and one is practical. The theological reason is found in every one of those passages we just read. It's our association with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately, it is Jesus that saves it is through his death, it is through that watery grave that you go down as a worldly, stained person, but you come up resurrected as a new creation, made brand new. The old is gone and the new has come. It is a tangible expression of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But the second reason is a practical reason. And I think that's because baptism, it overcomes our individual pride. 
You know, if there's one thing that keeps you and me from God, one of the biggest things really, it's our pride. And I'll just admit it, it's humbling to be baptized. If you've got a risk or a fear of water for some of you, some of you, you don't want to give up that new hairdo that you just got, or putting yourself in the hands of another person and you're trusting them, I mean, it's a little fear-inducing, and it's humbling. You're going public in your faith for Christ. And let me just say, if you have objections to being baptized, if you can come up with reasons why you shouldn't be baptized, then friends, that's the very reason you should. Because it's your objections. It's your reasons, not God's. God was very clear about it. And the one who gave his life for you commands it. It makes you moldable before God. It places you in the hands of God. James 4.10 is a verse that says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, Roger didn't know I was going to do this, so this is going to mess with me. I know this is, uh, and maybe I'm not going to do well with this. I don't play guitar much. Um, but there's a song that was written and picked up by a guy named Chris Tomlin that I just want to share a little bit with as we close my sermon this morning. I don't need that. Great is your faithfulness, O God. You wrestle with the sinner's heart. You led us by still waters and to mercy and nothing can keep us apart so remember your children remember your people remember your promise oh god your grace is enough your grace is enough your grace is enough for me. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for me. Great is your love and justice, God. You use the weak to shame the strong. You lead us in the song of your salvation And all your people sing along So remember your children Remember your people Remember your promise, oh God Because your grace is enough your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. Can you just sing that chorus with me? Your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. Your grace is enough, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for me.
Would you stand with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing from your scripture that you are a God. Man, all the things that you have done, all the things that you have given, and the very fact that your nature never changes. You've always been a giving God. You gave the ultimate. You gave your son for a sinner like me, for an individual that would just wreck his life, an individual who would think the wrong things, say the wrong things, do so many things that are outside your holiness. But when you spoke of your salvation, when I saw you for who you really are, and I claimed you as my Lord and Savior, when I did the about face of this life and said, no more, I'm not gonna waste this life. I don't wanna live it for something that just takes and takes and takes until there's nothing left but hell. I turned toward you. Now, I haven't always gotten that right, and you know that none of us have. That's one thing we share in common in this room as well. There's not one person that is perfect. But Father, because of you, we accept your perfection. We confess our sins before you. We call upon your name. And once again, you give us that sense of fresh newness and spirit that reminds us we're yours. Father, somebody in this room perhaps today, they never crossed that line. They've held on to their reasons and their objections and even their timing. It's not about them. It's about humbly submitting to you, knowing that you'll lift us up. So Father, would you give them courage would you give them a spirit of power and love and self-discipline to accept you as Savior, to be baptized into the life you have for them, calling on your name. Father, let us be your church as we praise and as we make a commitment to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.